Uh, today, we're, we're dealing with subjects like human trafficking. You cannot begin to believe the number of slaves that are trafficked, people that are trafficked, I should say. Men, women, boys, and girls that are trafficked all over the world. Or we could talk about sex slavery and children being taken, young people being taken and put into sex slavery. The, the Bible speaks to these kinds of, of culture is, cultural issues, and whenever they arise, it is a test as to whether we're going to be faithful to the authority of Scripture, no matter what the culture says, no matter what the flow of culture may be, that we're willing to go upstream against culture if it's necessary. Uh, one of those uh, issues, I think, is, is at the forefront in modern America, at least, is the issue of, of homosexuality. And being faithful at a moment like this and holding forth the truths of Scripture, even when culture disagrees, is going to be something that is a test of the degree of our faith and the commitment of our faith to the authority of the Word of God. I take a magazine, it's called Christianity Today. Uh, I get it uh, every month. And there's an article in it uh, by Andrea Dilley. She's the associate editor of Christianity Today. And she says, well, what I'm trying to express to you. I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm going to read a few paragraphs out of it. Listen. Over the last five years, she writes, an increasing number of believers have changed their stance on sexual ethics and slipped from the grounded banks of orthodoxy into the current of the times. Now listen to her, listen to her analogy. The current of the times, or you're standing on the banks. Several public figures in particular have come out as affirming and brought thousands with them. Those of us with a historic biblical view feel at times defensive or discouraged, and our posture, quite understandably, is one of holding our ground against theological erosion. In the midst of this tumult, we risk losing sight of what the church has to offer, not just a critique of false teaching, although that's needed but an alternative model, a bold vision of how orthodoxy enables deep, well-ordered love. As we encourage others to stay on the bank, we have the privilege of pointing them toward a picture that reveals God's purpose for human sexuality. Although the prohibitions of Scripture look to many like loveless, heartless don'ts, these commands grow out of a positive vision of human flourishing. She goes on a little later. Carrying this vision into the public square is arguably one of the toughest challenges for Christians today. It's difficult to openly discuss sexuality, and those who do speak up seem apologetic at times, especially when talking with secular journalists and other dissenters. They inadvertently, they inadvertently say in so many words, I wish I could affirm. But we have nothing to apologize for. On the contrary, the orthodox vision of human sexuality is abundantly good, true, and beautiful, and points toward health and healing. And then finally, she finishes by saying, with great pride and joy, then, we can hold a high an orthodox image of sexuality and champion what it has to offer. It protects the young who are vulnerable to visions of disordered love. 
It liberates those caught in disordered relationships. It affirms the body as God made it, and it pictures the Holy Trinity in union of male and female. We can, in effect, join with Christian history and nearly the entire global church in celebrating sexual ethics in their most enduring form, not to win a publicity battle, but to enable the wholeness of everyone around us, ourselves included. In essence, as you can imagine, what she's saying is that there are these challenges that come in every generation, challenges to what God teaches and to the truth that is given to us on the pages of the Scripture, and those challenges concern whether we're going to be faithful when others are in the stream that are moving away from the truth. Will we hold forth that truth? If you don't think this is a problem, just think recently about a Texas Democrat uh, by the name of Beto O'Rourke. In a human rights uh, campaign foundation where they were questioning the candidates about these LGBTQ issues, he was asked this question by Don Lemon. Do you think religious institutions like colleges, churches, charities should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? His response... Yes. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we are going to make that a priority and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. Now, I acknowledge that Beto O'Rourke has little chance of being elected. It's probably just wishful thinking on his behalf. But I can tell you that that's where culture is moving. That is the direction culture is going. If you don't affirm homosexuality, then we're going to punish you. We're going to find ways uh, to punish you. What they don't understand is that Jesus isn't a politician with a platform looking for it to be ratified. He's the Lord who has commanded us to obey him. And because of that, we have to look at what is a central passage about the subject of homosexuality. Actually, there are six uh, passages in the Bible that deal directly with the subject of homosexuality. One of them, the most significant, the lengthiest, being Romans chapter 1. I think it's interesting that, that a lot of times uh, people will say, well, Jesus never spoke to the issue of homosexuality. Well, in, in that vein of thought, Jesus didn't speak to a lot of contemporary issues that we deal with. And in that vein of thought, we have to be reminded that Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience And the Jewish audience knew what the law of Moses had to say about homosexuality. But even beyond that, really, Jesus did have something to say about homosexuality. Because Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. And thus he affirmed it. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. And beyond that, when he was asked a question about divorce... What were the grounds that were acceptable, allowable for divorce to occur? Jesus blows right by the question at first, and where does he go? He goes right to the creation order. 
He says a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one. And so, in fact, Jesus did speak to this subject, and there are other scriptures that speak to this subject in uh, ways that we might not initially recognize, but there is no confusion when you come to Romans chapter 1, what he's saying. And so I want to break down Romans chapter 1 into three parts. We're going to talk, first of all, about the good news. This is verses 16 and 17. And then we're going to talk about the bad news. That's verses 18 to 32. And then, because it's so familiar to us today, I'm going to talk about the fake news. The fake news. So so let's begin looking at this passage by, by talking about the good news. It begins in verse 16. For I, Paul speaking, am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God, the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Can we just stop there for a moment? There is nothing that I would rather talk about for the rest of this message than the good news. Our world is filled with so much bad news, I dread even turning on the news to see what's going on in the various parts of the world, let alone in Washington, D.C. But I'm glad to be able to come before you today and to announce some incredibly good news. And here's the good news. It's called the gospel. It centers around the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It tells us that though we are sinners, Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. And if we come to Jesus and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God takes away our sins and God imparts to us the gift of eternal life. And he gives to us life more abundant. Not just life for the future when we are in heaven, but life for right now. God does all of that by His grace, and He does all of that by His mercy. He justifies us, and He redeems us, and He reconciles us, and He calls us His children, and He makes us heirs. Should I go on? I mean, that is the incredible good news that's found in the New Testament. Really, it's found in the whole Bible. That's the incredibly good news that's found in the Scripture. That Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus has paid for you what you could not pay for yourself. Jesus has given to you something that you could never have earned yourself. And Jesus has done it freely. And Jesus has done it lovingly. And Jesus has done it mercifully. And Jesus has done it for you and for me. Nobody's excluded. It's to everybody who believes. It's not about how many works you can or you can't do. It's not about how much money you can give or can't give. It's not about how long you have left to live or how short your life may be. It's to everyone who believes. It is the power of God unto salvation. That's incredible news. It's to the Jew first and to the Greek. But nobody is left out no matter where they live. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the life-changing power of the Almighty God. Can I tell you that we make a horrible mistake in our churches when we don't talk frequently enough about the gospel. We make a horrible mistake in our homes and in our communities and in our workplaces when we don't talk enough about the gospel. 
It is the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. It's not the preacher in the pulpit. It's not the congregation of the church. It's not the beauty of the facilities. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation. And the gospel brings salvation to sinners. But it not only brings salvation to sinners, the gospel sanctifies the saints. He goes on in verse 17, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that is God's, God's means of making us right with him, bringing us into a right relationship, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. There's different ways to understand faith to faith. It can mean faith through and through, and certainly it is that. But I want you to think of it in the sanctifying sense, from faith to faith. You say, preacher, how can I ever be sanctified, meaning set apart? How can I get the worldliness out of my life, the sinfulness out of my life? How can I be like Jesus? How can I be more like Jesus? The answer is not more rules. The answer is the gospel. The gospel is not only the power of God to save sinners, the gospel is the power of God to sanctify the saints. And we come back to the foot of the cross and to the empty tomb over and over and over, and we find the power of Jesus Christ to do what we could never have done ourselves. Because the gospel is from faith to faith. I trust him as my savior. And then I trust him the next day as I live for him. And the day that follows and the day after, it's from faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. And we live out our lives trusting in the gospel and in the power of the gospel. I'm glad to be able to tell you that in the gospel, he didn't save you and then say to you, do the best you can. I hope you can, I hope you can do really well so I can reward you in the end. That isn't what he said. He said, you come to me and I'll save you and then I'll give you my power. I'll give you my power. That, my friends, is incredibly good news. It is the gospel that sets apart Christianity from every other religion of the world. Every other religion offers to you the works that you have to do, the deeds that you have to follow, the lists that you have to check off. Jesus comes and he says, it's already done. It's already done. It's not about what you do. It's already done. And you come and you put your faith in Jesus and that gospel saves your soul. And then the power of God within you by that gospel sanctifies you day by day. Hey, you can't say with Flip Wilson, and most of you don't even know that. I shouldn't say most, many of you don't even know the name. The old comedian, the dead comedian. But on the show, you can't say with Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. You can't say it. You know why? Because as a child of the living God, the power of sin, though you may be yielding to it, the power of sin has been broken. You are not enslaved to your sin. Jesus has set you free, and Jesus, the power that raised up Christ from the dead, lives in you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I've got good news for you today. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I got good news for you today. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what your background may be or how hard your life is or how good your life is. The gospel is good for you because Jesus wants to save you 
And Jesus wants to set you apart for himself. And he wants to do it all by his own work as you yield yourself to him. That, my friends, is incredibly good news. The gospel. But he moves in this passage from the good news to the bad news. He begins in verse 18, talking about this willful ignorance. If you're writing the words down, they all have the same letters to begin. And there's six of these little phrases coming. They're willful ignorance. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, here's the word, suppress. It means hold down the truth in unrighteousness because... What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has shown it to them. And how long has it been showing? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. They're not vaguely seen. They're clearly seen. If you walk outside and you look up into the heavens, at least when the clouds aren't there, And you see the stars that are flung all across space. And you recognize that it is your God who created all of those stars. It is the one true God that created all of those stars. You have to look at creation. I cannot believe that scientists can look at creation, can look at the human body, can look at the workings of the universe and come to the conclusion that it just happened, it somehow happened over a course of millions and billions of years, that there was no divine architect. It doesn't even fit logic. It doesn't even even fit logic. He says, the divine attributes of God since the creation of the world have been shown to them. And they're clearly seen. Notice he says, being understood. The problem isn't that they aren't understood. The problem is that they are suppressed. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now notice the last phrase, so that they are without excuse. You say people living on the other side of the planet where they've never had a gospel preacher, preacher, are they responsible for their own sin? And the answer is yes. They've had the general revelation of God and had they only looked up, had they only looked around and said, we want to know this God. God would have made it possible for them to know Him through the special revelation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's willful ignorance. There's willful ignorance in America, isn't there? There's willful ignorance on the other side of the world, isn't there? There's willful ignorance. Well, that willful ignorance leads to woeful ingratitude. Verse 21, because although they knew God, that is, they knew who He was, they knew this, was a, this had to be a, been created by a divine architect, Although they knew God, they did not, here it comes, glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Do you know what's at the heart of so many of the sins we commit? Ungratefulness. Ungratefulness. And those who had suppressed the truth about God end up with an attitude of woeful ingratitude in their hearts. 
It says they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They moved from willful ignorance to woeful ingratitude to wretched, to wretched insolence. To wretched insolence. Wretched contempt toward God. We don't want God. We're going to suppress the truth about God. We're not going to be grateful for who He is or what He's created or all that He's done. And when you take that attitude, you move toward this wretched insolence, this wretched contempt. And when you have that kind of wretched contempt, it inevitably produces a wicked idolatry. Verse 23, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In other words, they change the glory of God into this inglorious image of these animals. You say, but preacher, I understand what they're saying, but that has to be for those who live in some kind of a third world context where they really make things out of rocks and stones. If you didn't hear my message last week, you need to go back and get it and you need to listen to it. It's free. It's online. You need to go back and listen to it. But at the heart of what's going on in our nation and in this world for that matter is something called humanism, postmodernism and humanism. Let me just read to you. I took this, this is, I copied this right off the website, the Humanist Manifesto website. I can't read it all to you, but let me just read one sentence out of it for you. Are you ready? Humanists affirm that humans have the freedom to give meaning, value, and purpose to their lives by their own independent thought, free inquiry, and responsible creative activity. You know what that means? <laughs> that means man is at the center of his own world. Our idols might not look like animals, they might not be made out of rocks, they might not be made out of wood. They may be made in our own image, something that we think of that's in our own families. It could be our children. It could be our spouses. It could be our possessions. It could be the sports that we are involved in. It could be our favorite team. It could be anything. Because it's all about me. It's about me being happy. It's not about living my life for the glory of God and pleasing God and glorifying God. They don't believe there is a God. They suppressed. There's willful ignorance. There's woeful ingratitude that's led to their wretched insolence that brings about their wicked idolatry. And they are at the center of their own world. You're not going to walk in their house. They're going to have a little corner of their house with a whole bunch of little rocks and pieces of wood sitting in the corner. No, the idol oftentimes is the person sitting in the recliner. Because the world is all about me. They move from wicked idolatry to wanton immorality. Verse 24, therefore, three times he says this, God also gave them up to uncleanness. That's sexual immorality in general to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. What did they do? They exchanged. They didn't just suppress it. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature. Are you one of God's creatures? <laughs> sure you are. You were created by God. 
Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. And then he takes it another level. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use to what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Their willful ignorance led to woeful ingratitude and wretched insolence that produced a wicked idolatry that brings about a wanton immorality. Listen, when life is all about you, I mean... All you have to think about is what's going to make me happy. What brings me satisfaction, no matter what that immorality may look like. And then he points out finally this wild incorrigibility. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. That's the third time. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Maybe I should just stop and preach there a little while. Undiscerning untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. It's not just enough that they do it. They're happy that others are doing it with them. And what you're reading about in Romans chapter 1, by the way, Romans 1 to 3 is the apostles' Uh, exposition about the sinfulness of all mankind. There's none righteous, no, not one, for we've all come short of the glory of God. And he pulls out some of these things. It's not an exhaustive list. He pulls out some of these things, and here is the evidence. We suppressed the truth of God. We exchanged it for a lie. We showed no gratitude toward the God who created everything there is. We developed this insolent attitude and heart. We filled our own world and became our own gods to ourselves. And then we began indulging ourselves in whatever we felt we wanted. And what you're reading about in Romans chapter 1 is the decline of a society. It's a downward spiral that's moving toward the judgment of God. The Bible has a lot to say about homosexuality. It has a lot to say. But do you realize that some of the things that are said are just fake news? There's good news. That's the gospel. There's bad news. We live in a world and are a part of that world that's filled with sinners. But there's a whole lot of things in the world in which we live that are just simply fake news. I have to move through these quickly. The first one is this. There are those who say the traditional interpretation of Paul's words here needs a fresh updating. These words don't really mean what you think they mean. There's another way to understand and interpret these verses. And I always find that kind of an approach interesting because it flies in the face of 2,000 years of church history. 
in the teaching of the Word of God. Don't you think it's strange that in 2,000 years somebody else hadn't figured out that they'd been interpreting the passage wrongly for all 2,000 years? But really, this passage that they, they look at, they say, well, it's not really about uh, loving, committed homosexual relationships. It's really about those that are promiscuous, where, where prostitution might be involved, or where there's one-night stands, or where a master is forcing himself on the slave, or where it's a man-boy kind of a relationship. Or even, they say, it's where heterosexuals are practicing homosexuality. And at the heart of what they think is that Paul just didn't know about loving, committed, homosexual relationships and homosexual unions. If he had, he'd have made a distinction. But do you realize that just isn't true? That's fake news? I mean, the Apostle Paul knew about enduring, committed, same-sex relationships. He was a Roman citizen, after all. He lived in that world. It's Plutarch who wrote in the first century, who makes a distinction between homosexual sex for mere pleasure and homosexual practice rooted in a creator's design for human flourishing. In other words, he wrote about it when Paul was alive. In one of Plato's works, he mentions two adult men who were lovers for more than 10 years. And stop and think about it. One of the best read men of the day, one of the most traveled men of the day, the Apostle Paul, do you think he didn't know about committed homosexual relationships he most certainly knew but when he came to give us Romans chapter 1 he didn't make those distinctions because there is to be no distinctions he defines all sexual relations of men with men and women with women as a departure from the creator's design for human flourishing and can we just use our logic for a moment if homosexuality is okay within a loving, committed, homosexual relationship, then wouldn't these other things be okay? These other 24 sins that are listed be okay within the right context? I mean, within the right context, couldn't we be malicious and envious and murder and have strife and deceit and evil-mindedness? I mean, if we're in the right context with people that we're committed to, it's not even logical. It's not even logical. The Apostle Paul says it's unnatural. I don't know what that means to you, but it's pretty clear what it should mean. The Greek language, Tim Keller says, it means against nature. Now put that together in your own mind. Against nature. So when you hear somebody say, well, the traditional interpretation of Paul's words needs a fresh updating, well, that's just fake news. There's some other fake news as well. Some will say, God made me this way, so surely he wants me to be myself. I'm made this way, so, I mean, after all, I'm living in this society. God made me this way. Well, first of all, we don't deny that you were born the way you are because every one of us are born in sin. Some were born with a propensity towards selfish ambition. Some were born with a propensity toward raging temper or rapacious greed. Some were born with all of these different kinds of things that we would never in any way say those are okay. And that's why the Bible says that we have to be born again. You understand that the opposite of homosexuality isn't heterosexuality. 
The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And you'd never give the right to those who have anger and selfish ambition and certain other sexual desires and say, well, you just can't help yourself. I mean, after all, you love, you love children rather than adults. You can't help it. That's the way you were born. Think for a moment. What, what if I came to my wife and I said to her, you know, you're the most beautiful woman on the planet, and she is in my estimation, the most beautiful woman on the planet. But honey, I, I've just got to let you know that I was born polygamous. And I, I've just got to be true to myself, sweetheart. Let me ask you a question. You think your wife or your husband would be okay with that? You, you think they'd be okay with that? Hmm. This is an article this week. Three's company for one Washington State trio who live happily together under one roof with their four children and embrace life as a thruple, despite what others may think. CrossFit gym owners Mary and Leo Barillas met Kimberly Slagle at their fitness facility in 2016 and instantly, in quotes, vibed <laughs> with the mother of two, the son reports. The friendship we all had turned into attraction, Leo said. A romantic relationship started in 2016. Sometime that year we fell in love, probably at different times for different reasons. We decided the three of us just vibed really well. I guess that's a, a, a Northwestern way of talking about it. Slagle and her sons, Keegan, 11, and Kemper, 7, moved into the Barillas' Kennewick home in June 2017, which they share with the couple's children, Carson 9 and Page 4, the Daily Mail reports, making for a one-of-a-kind happy household. I'll skip over some of it. Polyamory means being honest and being open and honest with who we are, Leo said. We love more than one person and embrace that even, even though it is beyond the social norm. Honestly, it's not very different from a traditional two-person relationship. <laughs> I don't think Mary would feel that way about it. We have a special relationship with each of our partners that we love and cherish, and together we have a thruple, he claimed. Ultimately, Leo said that he and his partners are simply thankful to be able to live their best life together as one. Best life now. Right? God made me this way. That's fake news. God made me this way, so surely he wants me to be myself. Can I just remind you that possessing a desire innately only shows that you have a corrupt heart. Surely we don't understand that possessing a desire innately makes it right. Right? Just because we possess an innate desire doesn't make it right. Right? We're all born into sin. And it's fake news when somebody says, well, God made me this way, so surely he wants me to be myself. Well, is that logical? Well, God made me uh, malicious. I was born with maliciousness. So I, I'm assuming because I was born that way or I have this 
full of envy or I have murder in my heart. I suppose it's okay under this context and in your logic to go ahead because that's my innateness. To go ahead and express it. No, that's not true. That's fake news. Number three, homosexuality is... Here's the the third uh, fake news. Homosexuality is the worst kind of sin a person can commit. That's fake news. It's not. Paul lists homosexuality as one corruption among many others. I mean, look at the rest that he's got there. There's 24 others. By the way, do you understand the distinction that's going on here? Look back at verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all his ungodliness. That's vertical. That has to do with a rebellious attitude toward God. But it's not only revealed toward all ungodliness, it's also revealed toward unrighteousness of men. That's horizontal. That's the way we treat others. That's the way we interact with others. That has to do with God's great command. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. That's vertical. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's horizontal. Those who suppress the truth, those who exchange the truth for the lie, those who have no gratitude in their heart for who God is or what God's done, those who replace Him and become their own gods, vertically offend God and horizontally hurt others. That's what He's saying. Do you get that? That's what He's saying. And when you get down to verse 28, notice it. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with, here's that horizontal aspect, all unrighteousness. Wow. The Apostle Paul lists this whole number of sins. Some of them are against God vertically. Some are against others horizontally. But before God, they're all sins. One author says that Paul cites homosexuality not because it's the greatest sin, not not, not because it's the greater sin than any other, but because it's the clearest evidence of a rejection of God's order in creation. Let me ask you a question. Do you think greed and envy and deceit are depraved? Do you? Come on, class, do you? Uh, How about rebellion toward parents or being inventors of evil things? Do you think that's depraved? How about murder? It's absolutely depraved. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that the worst sin in this passage isn't homosexuality or any of the list of 24 that are given to us there, and that's not an exhaustive list. Do you know what the worst sin is? The worst sin is the idolatry of the heart. Tom Schreiner, who is a New Testament scholar at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote it this way. What does Paul focus, why does Paul focus on same-sex relations, especially since it receives little attention elsewhere in his writings? Probably because it functions as a fitting illustration of that which is unnatural in the sexual sphere. Idolatry is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. Just as idolatry is a violation and perversion of what God intended, so too same-sex relationships are contrary to what God planned when he created man and woman. And then he finishes by saying, are you with me? The fundamental sin isn't sexual, 
but the failure to worship God. All other sin is a consequence of this one. All other sin is a consequence of that one. I quickly will give this to you. I've introduced to you before a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. If you don't want to buy her books, she has three or two or three. If you don't want to buy her books, just go online and Google her name, Rosaria Butterfield, and listen to her as she speaks, answers questions, and lectures. You say, who is Rosaria Butterfield? Rosaria Butterfield was a practicing lesbian in a long-term relationship with a woman. She was a tenured professor of literature and women's studies at Syracuse. By the way, she reveals in the book how professors teach the minds of our young people things that are opposite of the Scripture. As a tenured professor, she reveals it. Rosaria Butterfield, who was living in that lifestyle, but who met a Christian couple and over a course of a few years came to understand that she was a sinner in need of the Savior, said that Romans chapter 1 is the passage that brought her to Christ. Her testimony is that the passage in Romans revealed her heart to her. She said that Paul was showing us what Eve went through in the Garden of Eden. We have to ask those kinds of questions. Who gets to declare what is good and what is Lord in my life? My desires are God's Word. And then she says, word for word, Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, play judge rather than be judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure, for His glory. You hear what she says? It's fake news. It's fake news when somebody says homosexuality is the worst kind of sin a person can commit. Now, the worst kind of sin is saying that you're your own God and you get to make up the rules yourself. I'll skip some things here. But I can tell you that fundamentally, that's why repentance looks the same for all of us. Because fundamentally, that's what sin is for all of us. I make the rules. This is about me being happy. God doesn't tell me what to do or how to live. I live like I want to live. And fake news number four, the final one. It's hard for a same-sex attracted person to get into heaven. That's just fake news. That's just fake news. Let's be clear about something. Homosexuality does not send you to hell any more than heterosexuality sends you to heaven. Do you know how you get to heaven? By the gospel. You come to Jesus and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus saves you Amen. from your sin. I want, I want to finish by reading something to you. Bob Wilkin, Dr. Bob Wilkin, has a Ph.D. from Dallas Theological Seminary. He worked with Zane Hodges, who was uh, the scholar and professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. One of the smartest men you would have ever known if he were still living. Dr. Wilkin writes about 
this fake news that same-sex attractive people can't get to heaven. And I want to read you word for word what he says. And then we're going to be through. Many people today believe that a practicing homosexual cannot be saved. They would tell a practicing homosexual that he must first stop his homosexual behavior and then, and listen to the words, and only then would he be able to put his trust or place his trust in Christ and be saved. Such a view, he says, grieves me. I actually hurt inside when I hear people say such things. Why? Because I too am a practicing sinner. And but for the grace of God, I would be bound for eternal suffering in hell. If a gay or lesbian can't come to Christ in simple faith, just as they are, just as they are, do we really mean just as I am? Do we really mean it? If a gay or lesbian can't come to Christ in simple faith just as they are, then neither can any practicing sinner. The scriptures are clear on this point. It only takes one sin of any magnitude to condemn to hell. All are sinners, and even the holiest of Christians remains a practicing sinner until he goes to be with the Lord. If practicing sinners, can't, if practicing sinners can be saved, then so can practicing homosexuals. Likewise, if practicing homosexuals cannot be saved, then neither can practicing sinners of any stripe. One seeming problem is that it sounds like we are condoning sin by saying that practicing homosexuals can be saved. However, the accusation does not stick because we do not condone sin in the life of a believer. We preach against it. We call believers to lives of wholehearted service of Christ. We call Christians to deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Christ daily. We preach discipleship to believers. The difference is we do not call unbelievers to clean up their lives so they can, so they can be saved. We call them to accept the free gift of salvation by placing their faith in Jesus Christ alone to save them. Let anyone, homosexuals included, who wishes to drink of the living water which will forever quench their thirsty souls, come and drink freely. I know many of you may not believe that. That's what I believe. That's what I've always believed. I don't look at people and say, let me ask you a question. Are you looking at pornography? All right. Do you have anger in your heart? We come just as we are because we cannot change ourselves on our own. Are you with me? Jesus came to save sinners. Hear the word? Sinners of all kinds. And it's just fake news. When somebody says it's hard for a same-sex attracted person to get into heaven, they get into heaven just like everybody else does. They get into heaven by trusting Jesus. So let me just finish. I want to say something to you, by the way. She's written some new chapters in the back. For you parents or family members who have somebody in your family that comes out. She's written to the LGBT community in the back of this book. Let me just say something to those of you that have same-sex attraction. We want you to know that God loves you. God loves you. I know the church hadn't been very good at showing it, but we want you to know that we love you too. That doesn't mean that your sin is okay, but we want you to know that there's one who can set you free. 
We want you to know there's one who can forgive you. We want you to know that there's one who can give you life more abundant. And we want to talk with you. We want to introduce you to the one who loves you. And we want to point you to the one who can change your life and give to you meaning and purpose and be surrounded with the love that God gives. Are you with me? There's a, there's a song that I want Mary to come to the piano and play. There is a fountain filled with blood. We're going to sing.